Hi, you're listening to an older episode. The podcast is now called Travel Writing World. You can find the episode show notes and much more at travelwritingworld.com. This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to All Over the Place, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and on the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, your free travel writing guidebook, and much more at alloverthepacepodcast.com. Today's episode brings us to Birmingham, where Jonathan Chatwin speaks with us about modern Beijing and urban design, his travel writing influences, and his new book, Long Peace Street. Jonathan holds a PhD in English Lit and writes regularly on Chinese history and culture. His essays have been published by the British Film Institute, the South China Morning Post, and the Asian Review of Books, just to name a few. So now... Here is Jonathan Chatwin. Well, Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks, Jeremy. Uh, great to be here. So I'm excited to talk with you about your new book, Long Peace. <laughs> On my notes, I have Peach Street. <laughs> it's definitely not Peach Street. <laughs> it's a very different sort of book. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Long Peace Street, A Walk in Modern China. It's a book that focuses on the modern history of Beijing uh, along the city's most important street. But first, perhaps we should touch upon your background and uh, maybe maybe you can connect the dots for, for us here. I, I believe you hold a PhD in English Lit and wrote another book about Bruce Chatwin, the famous travel writer. So what was the focus of your training and how does modern Beijing or more generally modern China fit into this conversation? Um, yeah, I mean, joining the dots is is easier said than done in some ways. I, I ended up in China slightly whimsically. Um, so I had um, been studying and, and finished a doctorate in English lit, and I'd been writing about um, the work of my namesake, uh, Bruce Chatwin, um, who I'm sure many of your listeners will know um, as sort of one of the, the great uh, late 20th century travel writers. Uh, and I was working on a book about him, which was using some of the archival material that he had left um, to the Bodleian Library in, in Oxford. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I ended up moving to to, to Shanghai and, and uh, um, uh, finishing writing the book and sort of slightly drifting around, not knowing uh, quite what to do with my life. Um, and uh, I had never been to China before. So this was in 2010. Uh, and it was the first place I can remember having gone that I felt this uh, incredible sense of, uh, of of difference from the world that I, I knew. Um, and I found it fascinating. Mm. Um, and I suppose for the last, so for the subsequent 10 years since then, I've spent a lot of time um, becoming more and more interested in, in how the country uh, got to where it is today. 
so I I spent a long time traveling. Um, I, I lived in China for, for about three years and I, I go back pretty much every year for, for fairly long stints often. So I've, I've traveled pretty widely in the country and um, mm. I continue to find it a, a fascinating place. Um, and so I suppose the book was an attempt to combine those two enthusiasms on the one hand for uh, travel literature, which was um, very much the sort of literary form that I was um, and still am uh, most interested by, and the story of, of, of China and how it got to where it is today. And the book is a kind of fusion of those two um, interests, those two ideas, I suppose. Um, how successfully it fuses those is, is for other people to judge. But that was my, that was my intention, I suppose. So what took you to Shanghai? You said you went there whimsically. Like, what was the the impetus to to go? So, the, uh, my partner at the time, she got a job out there, uh-huh. and uh, I was like, "Should I?" I was living in England at the time, and I kind of didn't. I'd finished my PhD, and I, I didn't really know what I was doing uh, quite with uh, with that. And I had to write this book as well. And I thought, well, you know, why not go to why not go to China? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think you know now, sort of. 10 years on it looking back i feel like well, that was a pretty uh, big life decision to make but at the time it seemed like a it seemed like a good idea and and, <laughs> and i was i was very pleased uh you know to, to have had that that experience um it was an interesting time to to, to be there in some ways it, it's china's changed a lot over the last uh, 10 years i mean it, it changes incredibly quickly it's it's a bit of a truism about the country but it is um equally a fact that um you know the pace of change in China is extreme. But at 2010, I was there um, and for the subsequent three years. So I sort of saw the beginning of the transition to um, Xi Jinping taking control of the country. And uh, in some ways, that that era seems like a bit of a golden age uh, in comparison to, to the way things have gone subsequently in the country. Mm-hmm. And did you pick up uh, Mandarin while you were there? Or did you do any studying prior to that move? Uh, I did very little studying prior to it, which was uh, made the move quite painful. Uh, yeah, mm. I mean, I, I was really enth- enthusiastic to to try and get to grips with with the language, and um, I still continue as a student of Chinese today. I don't think anyone ever feels <laughs> like they've they've really fully um, acquired. Uh, I mean, that, that that that's not true. There are some wonderful Western speakers of Chinese, but for 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 most people, I think it feels like an ongoing uh, challenge. And um, I. I I enjoy it, but it's uh, equally um, it's a frustrating language to learn in some ways because even if you're if you if you acquire a, a good degree of fluency, you can quite easily be undone by a trip to um, a part of China where they speak a different dialect, mm-hmm. um, and suddenly your kind of confidence evaporates. Uh, even as just you know, sort of hour outside Beijing, I have have some friends who come from uh, Hebei province and visiting their their family. Uh, they speak a very, very different version of, of Chinese to the the, uh, the, the Mandarin that uh, you learn in the textbook. So, yes, it's a challenge. Well, you uh, in, in the book, you you write about some of the conversations you have with other uh, other people and little children. Um, most of the time, that's in, in English, uh, but you do speak with guards and, and Mandarin, and you know, it gives us a sense that you're fairly com- comfortable with the language uh, to the point where you can have random conversations on the street, which I guess should happen after three years in a country if you're, if you're doing something right. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that, um, I mean, I, I, I read a lot of 
modern books on China, and and a lot of them are are, are excellent. Um, a lot of them are written by journalists, and um, a sort of staple of those books is uh, is interview. You know, and that, those can be vox poppy on the street kind of interviews, or they can be very uh, in depth, uh, long form um, interviews. Um, I tend to think that the if you're going to do it, the latter is is probably the the, the way to the way to do it. Um, and I slightly consciously avoided having um, those sorts of yeah vox poppy conversations uh, punctuating the book. I mean, there are conversations that happened organically, um, and I felt that was right to include them because one thing I wanted it to be was a fairly um, accurate account of the of the walk that I undertook. But um, there is a bit of a tradition of uh, of I, mean, I remember when it was uh, the recent anniversary of the Tiananmen um mm-hmm. Uh, protests and you know their violent quelling in, in in the beginning of June 1989 and there were Western journalists going out sort of with photos of of, of the tank man you know the, mm-hmm. the the guy who stood in front of the tanks on the uh, on the street that I'm writing about actually um, and sort of asking Chinese people what their thoughts were on it which is I think deeply problematic for a number of a number of reasons so yeah I, it was an interesting balance to strike because I was never going to be able to spend hours chatting to people as I made my way along the on, along the road. Um, but it was important for me to have some Chinese voices in there. There were Chinese voices, uh, you know, from literature. So some of the, um, the sources that I cite um, kind of draw on the Beijing tradition of, uh, of literature. Uh, and I translate some poems as well. So I try and get a kind of multiplicity of, of voices in there. Um, but primarily the... Um, the experience of moving through the space was was mine, um, and I wanted to make it clear that, that this was a book which emphasised the limited nature of that experience. You know, I'm a I'm not a Beijing, uh, I'm a I'm a foreigner in this place, mm-hmm. and um, I, I wanted not to overstate my claim in in, in many ways. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, uh, well, why don't you walk us through the premise of your book, this experience that you had walking along Peace Street? Sure. So. Um, the geography of, of Beijing is in many ways quite straightforward. It's um, very symmetrically ordered. Um, and traditionally, uh, the um, Chinese cities were oriented around a north to south axis. Uh, this was the ancient way. And it sort of de- that dates back about o- over 2000 years, that mm. way of ordering a city on, on this north to south axis. Um, Chang'anjie, which is the Chinese name for the street that I walked uh, I walked along, um, it's translated in a number of different ways into English. Um, Long P Street is an incredibly literal and not particularly elegant uh, translation in some ways. Uh, it's often translated as the street of eternal peace mm. or the avenue of eternal peace. Um, I chose the, the the title partly because um, when I first started learning Chinese, I had these language tapes, and it would one of the conversations was about where is Long Peace Street, and eventually then I moved to Beijing, and and I lived just off Chang'anjie, and I was like, oh, there's Long Peace Street, and so that that kind of had a nice uh, bit of synchronicity to it, um, and the other reason was that it captured something of the walk itself. I walked along this um, very straight, um, very broad avenue. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about twenty miles um, across, uh, not uh, the north-south axis of the city, but the east-west axis, and it was built by the communists in the uh, 1950s um, to 
in in many ways consciously subverts the old order of the city you know as i say the old imperial beijing that had the grand imposing city walls and the mm -hmm. palaces and the temples this was all oriented around the north to south um, the the communist party came in and they built this big avenue east to west and it's the avenue if anybody you know even with a cursory knowledge of of china it's the it's the one place that you will probably know because it's the street down which the troops parade mm -hmm. um, every October first. Um, it's the street that divides the Forbidden City from Tiananmen Square. So it's incredibly central in terms of the iconography of of modern China. And so, yeah, over the course of two days in August uh, 2016, um, I walked uh, from west to east along it. And as I say, it's about, about 20 miles. Um, it's an incredibly bad uh, August is an incredibly bad time to choose <laughs> uh, to do that. If anyone's ever been to China uh, in the in the summer, um, it was about I think about 33, 34 degrees Celsius. Uh, I can't do this the Fahrenheit, I'm afraid, for uh, American listeners, but that's very hot. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and and very and ve and very humid. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, Chinese people, I told, that's what I was going to do, you know, just looked at me like I'd lost my mind. But um, so, yeah, that brought a different element of the to, to the to the experience. Um, and then subsequently spent, you know, the next two years, um, you know, it was a very limited experience, as I said at the, at the beginning, you know, the, the, these two days and then trying to translate those two days into uh, a 300 page book. Um, was really an interesting experience for me, trying to drill down and kind of write about some of the minutiae of, of what I experienced, but also using uh, the walk as a way of jumping off into the story of Chinese history. Mm -hmm. And that, I think that's where the book uh, shines. Early, early in the book, you mention uh, about having an, an, an encounter with a guard, I think, in the western part of Long Peace Street. And the guard asks you, why something to the effect of why do you want to walk along Long Peace Street? Like, wh why did you seek to walk? And in the book, you mentioned that, I don't know, you just muttered something and walked away from him. Um, and so that question remains unresolved. Uh, why did why did you want to walk along the street? What um, was that motivating <laughs> force to to do that in such a hot time of year? And, and like, where did this idea come from? Um. So I had lived, I had lived uh, just off Long Peace Street um, a few years before I did the walk, um, mm -hmm. and I used to travel on it a lot. It's it's a main artery across the city, and I would get taxis, you know, and cycle along it, and I uh, I became very familiar with it, and it's a sort of orienting, useful orienting. Um, you know, point in, in the city. And um, as I traveled along it over the time I lived there, I started to realize that, that this was a place uh, of enormous historical significance. Um, not only because it, it, at the center, it, it cuts through some of um, the most iconic parts of, of Beijing, but also uh, sort of on its, on its eastern and western flanks, there are these sites of um, either historical importance or architectural importance or, um, importance in in terms of the way the city has has developed and i started to see i talk in the book about it sort of feeling to me a bit like a one of those geological core samples you know when they <laughs> when they when they when, when they, they take in the yeah exactly you've got the different strata of <laughs> of uh of the of the you know hundreds of thousands of years um and for me the street acted a little bit like that it seemed to speak um interestingly about but particularly the recent uh 
past of, of China. Um, in terms of walking, I suppose f for me coming from a uh, background of studying travel literature and uh, Bruce Chatwin, who um, believed in the sacred power of walking. Um, I love uh, many of the travel books I love best are those that are undertaken on foot. So W. J. Bald's uh, The Rings of Saturn, for example, is a another example. So, and, and I also just love walking in cities. I do it uh, I do it a lot. Um, I tended to find when I lived in Beijing, I tried to walk as much as possible because it was the least uh, bad of the transportation mm -hmm. options. And uh, it's something that I've always had an affection for. So it seemed to me, um, I didn't know when I did the walk, whether it, whether this idea was going to work, whether I was going to be able to um, take my experience and conjure something from it. But um, I, I felt that there was, uh, there, there is something um important about the experience you have on foot or there's something different about the experience you have on foot to any other mode of travel uh, it slows you down mm -hmm. uh, it opens you up especially if you're a solitary traveler it opens you up to encounter uh, with others but i think in the city one of the other things that it does is it, it emphasizes your sense of, of separateness and you know baudelaire and his notion mm -hmm. of the flaneur you know it talks about that feeling you get as being sort of part of a mass but then separate to it um and i quite enjoyed that dynamic and um, um, and that was that was part of the i guess philosophy of the book mm -hmm. yeah you mentioned baudelaire and the flaneur and also something that i never thought about but you you also mentioned henry david thoreau and his walks in nature as a counterpoint to baudelaire's you know walks in the city one uh, not necessarily better than the other, but kind of different in the solitude that they give, solitude in nature versus solitude in a crowd. And for Baudelaire, that that excitement was, um, you know, part of part of part of it, right? That was part of the joy. And I imagine in a city like Beijing, the energy from the crowd is something unmatched. Yeah, and I think that yeah, I mean, Baudelaire, there's a degree to which it's the it's almost voyeuristic, you know, it's that idea of separateness mm -hmm. and observing the observing the life that goes on, on around you. Um, I, obviously, the tradition that, uh, you know, the literary tradition most closely associated with walking is the is the romantic tradition of uh, the, the solitary figure in, in nature. Mm -hmm. um, and, and yeah, the, 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 the 19th century idea of the flanner kind of turns that on, on its head a little bit. Um, but yeah, I think one of the things I like about... Um, uh, traveling, uh, walking through places that I am not part of is that sense of separateness you have, um, and and the sense of anonymity. And I, I distinctly remember when I first travelled in in China, and uh, I, I travelled to a city way in the far southwest of the country. I was by myself; nobody knew where I was. And I remember sitting on a on a street corner there and watching the, you know, it was, it was rush hour in the evening, watching these you know thousands of people uh, crossing this crossroad and kind of having that sense of. Uh, I mean, I, I like urban spaces generally, but having that sense of simultaneous being part of this place and then very distinctly separate from it. I mean, it, a lot of this can sound incredibly pretentious, of course, and, and <laughs> I'm not sure I was having these profound aesthetic experiences as as I, you know, as I moved through the city. I mean, a lot of the time I was thinking, you know, I'm just really hot and it's really busy <laughs> and noisy and, and, you know, the pollution is bad. And so, but I think um, I was trying to I was trying to think about what it feels like to to have that experience, um, and to try and channel some of the 
the ideas that I had acquired over the years of studying other people who had uh, valued walking, whether that's walking in nature or walking in cities. Mm-hmm. And so it's especially liberating per the situationists, that the group of intellectuals in the, I guess, the first half of the 20th century, who, um, I don't know if I'm going to articulate this well, but they... Um, advocated for this idea of kind of walking aimlessly in a city as a way to separate oneself from, um, I guess, consumerist society, right? So they're walking in in a city, um, kind of letting the city pull or push the individual wherever he or she may go as a way to counter the consumption uh, capitalistic mode of exchange and um, public transportation and just what they call the the derive the the kind of drifting mm-hmm. in the crowd mm-hmm. and there's for them yeah it was a little bit pretentious but for them it was an experiment in, in living um, and I think that when we have discourse of travel uh, people are referring to oh go on a train it's slower it makes you connect more as opposed to flying in an airplane and here it seems to be that same sort of relationship walking uh, slows you down and enables you to connect in ways that even train travel can't yes and I, th- I think um, one of the interesting tensions I found in 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 doing my walk was was the fact that I wasn't really able to to wander uh, I mean I mean the the, the street is absolutely ruler straight uh, so it's 20 miles of unremitting straightness and and that was inter- an interesting i mean I, I know that sounds like a quite a banal observation in some ways but actually you never walk along the street i mean there's no i mean i live in i live in england and and none of the streets here are that you know, <laughs> that orderly and straight you know because of because of the the urban history of the place and all sorts of things um it's in, it's quite it's quite an interesting experience because it's incredibly monotonous in some ways because all you're doing is putting one foot in front of the other. There's no question of kind of oh, which way do I go now? You just follow the follow the, the this ever unspooling uh, road in front of you. Um, and so there was a you know anybody who visits um, Beijing and, and and finds themselves on on Chang'anjie will will realise it's actually quite a uh, quite a tedious place <laughs> space in many ways for, for much of its length um it is not uh, a place that is you know beautiful or you know much of much of it is lined with big office blocks and it's sort of 10 lanes wide and lots of traffic um it's not some sort of profound aesthetic experience there is an interesting um yeah sort of blandness to it uh, which speaks to uh, you know what the what the contemporary Chinese government have done to what many people, you know, who wrote about it before it was destroyed in the 50s, you know, said was the most beautiful city in the world. And this mm. this work of incredible um, architectural genius. Um, so part of the book, I suppose, is a, is a bit of a lament for what has been lost in creating this ruler straight, slightly bland um, highway that runs through the center of the city. So you mentioned uh, the hutongs in the book, and I imagine those are part of the things that were lost in the redevelopment of Beijing. Can you explain what a, what a hutong is and you know how they um, are, I guess, treated in contemporary Beijing? Sure. So um, if you imagine um, the north to south axes of the city in the 
old imperial days of China. Mm -hmm. uh, these were the most important. Um, and so you would have major roads running north to south. And then off them running east to west, you would have um, little alleyways. So uh, sometimes the analogy is the like the backbone of a fish and then the, which are the main uh, the main roads. And then these uh, the, the, the little fish bones that come off to each side are the hutong, um, these narrow alleyways. And that was really the um, structure of the majority of, of Beijing up until um, relatively recently. I mean, uh, the 1950s is when the destruction starts in, in earnest, but um, there is still a, you know, a decent number of, 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 of Hutong up into the 1980s. It's, it's the last sort of 30 years that has witnessed the greatest destruction. Um, these were, um, um, as I say, relatively narrow alleyways, just about broad enough to, to now get a car down, but not much mm -hmm. wider. Um, and uh, on either side of these alleys were single story courtyard houses, um, which were enclosed um, from the street. So there was a, a front a front gate, um, but you entered and came into uh, a courtyard that opened up in front of you. Um, they were um, an incredibly um, they, were, they were quite a specific architectural design to Beijing. Um, Hutong is a word, the provenance of which is disputed. Some people mm -hmm. think that it comes from the, uh, the old Mongol word for well. Um, and they were the sort of defining architectural feature of the city in many ways, with, along with the walls. Um, over time, certainly in the recent past, the land on which they sit has become incredibly valuable. Mm -hmm. um, local governments in China, one of the main ways they raise revenue is by um, is through uh, real estate development. Um, and these single story dwellings just simply, you know, fr from a government point of view, weren't weren't making enough money uh, for for the local government. So what what happened up to sort of a few years ago was uh, huge swathes of the city um, saw the Hutong torn down. Um, there are very few, I mean, I'm sure listeners are aware that really in terms of land rights in China, the people have not huge amounts of power to to, to, to um, control what the government do um, with, with the land they live on. Mm -hmm. um, and so people would wake up in the morning and find this character, uh, which means to destroy, painted on the wall. And they would know that the bulldozers were coming in and they'd have to clear out. Um, often the people who were living in the in the Hutong of this in more recent past were, were less well-off uh, people. So yeah, the, the the city was sort of raised, um, and lots of fairly bland office blocks and apartment blocks and uh, shopping malls were constructed where the hutong used to be, and and now they're really concentrated just in the north of the city. And the uh, the last few years has seen um, the Beijing government decide they're going to kind of Disneyfy mm. this area a bit. They've they've spent some money on on um, <laughs> on tarting it up, and in the process actually have managed to in in my opinion, do even more damage to the communities who lived there because they ended up um, closing down a lot of the small businesses that, that you know, these little restaurants, hole in the walls and uh, shops that had opened up, kicking out a lot of the poorer people because they're sort of not desirable in Beijing's um, idea of what it should be as a modern city. Um, and turning it into something that looks very nice if you want to go and take an Instagram photo, but, but actually uh, lacks um, a lot of the character that a lot of people uh, loved um, about the Hutong. So it's a bit of a, I mean, the history of Beijing is, is the recent history of Beijing is unfortunately a bit of a, uh, a bit of an unremittingly depressing story of architectural destruction and, and, and the Hutong kind of a, a, a epitomized that. It seems some way, in some ways, the, 
well, the modern history of China in general is uh, a tension between the traditional and the modern, or maybe we should not call it tension and just call it fight between you know tradition and, and modernity. On one hand, the camp trying to kind of push China into what they think of as uh, kind of the modern club, if you will, and um, kind of the destruction of what many consider to be traditional societies and, well, to say nothing of the ethnic minorities throughout China. Um, what do you make of this tension or this fight? Um, you kind of detail this along your walk, not just in the conversations about the hutong, but in, in others. Um, what do you make of this tension between tradition and, and modernity in China today? It's that's a it's a it's a big question, mm-hmm. and um, to some extent, the, the when the Communist Party take over in 1949, of course, they define themselves against the feudal past. Mm-hmm. What they represent is a new start, and and they spend an enormous amount of energy uh, in the early section of uh, certainly the first. Um, 27 years, I, I guess, uh, fighting and destroying uh, remnants of the old feudal past. Um, there's Mao in particular, uh, you know, he launches the Cultural Revolution in 1966, and that's all about smashing the the old culture mm-hmm. that uh, he believes still exists in the country. Um, actually, one of the re- only reasons that we still have some of the really iconic buildings of, of Beijing, so the Forbidden City being a good example of this, is because uh, Zhou Enlai, who was um, sort of Mao's second in command and pr- premier of the country, he intervenes to to save a number of these architectural sites um, in the city because he realises that they are, you know, of inestimable value. But the destruction that was done not only in Beijing, but nationally, uh, you know, just in terms of architecture, uh, was absolutely vast. Um, and China's now in a in an interesting um, position. And, and many people have observed that, well, what do you do if you destroy, a, you know, a cultural tradition that stretches back a, a very long time? Um, what do you replace it with? And uh, you know, there are many writers, uh, Ian Johnson, uh, perhaps most well known amongst them, who has, have investigated this question of the value system that that you uh, you need to adopt. Uh, you know, all cultures need some sort of value system, and um, the, the interesting ways in which uh, traditional forms of thought have been uh, resurrected and also Western uh, religions have, have been adopted mm-hmm. um, in order to sort of fill that void. Um, I think it is, you know, f- from a, one of the easiest ways to, to view the, 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 the um, one of the easiest ways to kind of visualize this debate about the ancient and the modern is through architecture. I think, I think it's a really interesting window onto national identity and mm-hmm. um, you f- Beijing went through a period, China went through a period of being the sort of venue for Western um, architects to go and do their most outlandish designs. And then in 2014, Xi Jinping started saying, actually, I think we want fewer of these weird buildings and we need something that's a bit more Chinese. But actually, what does that mean anymore? They had this right. debate back in the 50s. What do you, what does a modern Chinese building look like? Very often what they do is they build a, a modern building and then crane a, a pagoda roof on top of it. Well, <laughs> That's not that's not that's not gonna you know that's satisfying either uh, the modern or the ancient I don't think so uh, it's a question that remains un- unresolved um, and 
there is there is fierce debate. I think uh, even within even within China, certainly you know if you're talking specifically about architecture, about you know what should Chinese cities look like and um, to what right. extent should they have an identity that is definably. Chinese. Um, oh. I was just writing about Shenzhen, which is an interesting, uh, you know, obviously a fairly a very new city down on the south coast, and that feels to me like a city that's struggling to, uh, you know, architecturally very impressive, but struggling to define itself outside of the very broad straight avenues and incredibly tall skyscrapers, which seem to be the the default. Mm-hmm. Yeah, China is is we're all taught. I've never been, and I know very little about China, but. You know, one of the things that we were taught in school is that China is incredibly, incredibly diverse. And in some ways, just like in any other nation, right, the idea of the nation is something that's uh, manufactured, right, and often flies against the, the diversity within it. Uh, I remember my grandfather used to collect currency from around the world, and uh, I acquired some Chinese bills, and uh, they're tiny bills, I don't remember what their mm. denominations were, but um, they're small bills and each bill had a um, profile uh, portrait of, you know, some ethnic minority in this idea mm. of China. So, you know, judging from the the bills, it seemed like they you know, the idea of China is one of ethnic diversity. But on the other hand, there seems to be kind of this leveling of what it means to be uh, Chinese. If that that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it comes back to the government's desire for for control. Uh, There's a flattening and homogenization that that, that takes place because diversity of of most kinds, particularly diversity of thought and opinion, is something that is 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 very troublesome for the contemporary administration. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a that's a shame. It's it's something that is obviously most most palpable in in the contemporary news about china and i'm sure most people are aware of of the um brutal kind of homogenization attempts that are being executed by the by the chinese government in places uh not just in in xinjiang up in the northwest in in tibet as well uh it's a very depressing aspect um of a fairly depressing regime but it's got it has got worse i mean over the, uh, xi jinping is is um uh, he's a different kind of leader um, to his predecessors, and and absolutely focused on control of of all kinds. Um, and to some extent, yeah, that is reflected in in the national culture. Um, it's much harder to have a vibrant culture um, when ideas are you know ideas are controlled, history is controlled, um, identity mm-hmm. is controlled. Um, so yes, I think it's 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 an interesting time to be um, watching China. I mean, when when isn't I suppose? But <laughs> this question of uh, this question of where where we're going, I think uh, I think most people have realised. You know, there's some people when Xi Jinping took power who sort of said, "Oh, he's going to be a reformer and, and and things are going to be things are going to be good." And I think I think there are very few people left who who feel that. Um, but exactly where the next ten years will go. Um, it's it's an interesting open question. I certainly don't. I, I, have, I have learned to avoid prognostication on any <laughs> uh, on anything that happens in China.
Arizona. And, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I, one of the things I love about writing the book was I read, you know, sort of the last hundred years of, of visitors to China. I, I, I read a really wide range of those. And it's amazing how tempted uh, pretty much, you know, all Westerners have been over the, over the generations to making bold and then what appear wildly inaccurate claims about what's going to happen in yeah. China. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's, I think it's a bit of a fool's errand in many ways. And mm-hmm. in, in reading your book, uh, especially the chapter that deals with Tiananmen, you know, one has in mind, you know, Hong Kong and what's going on there since you brought up contemporary uh, issues mm. in China. Um, but circling back to the book first, and, and maybe we can piggyback the Hong Kong question here. You say that the name... Uh, Long Peace Street is jarringly inappropriate, right? And earlier you had mentioned that Tiananmen Square is off of Long Peace Street. So listeners can connect the dots there. But Mm. how else is it jarringly inappropriate um, apart from what we talked about with the, the Hutong and Tiananmen? Sure. I mean, Tiananmen, the protests of 89, which are along with probably the Cultural Revolution, one of the the, the two things that that, uh, that people tend to know about the history of China, you know, they, they tend to be the things that cut through. Mm-hmm. Um, Tiananmen was the end of uh, a, a, a movement, um, and you can, you know, depending on on your perspective, you can trace this back. Um, certainly a, a decade or so um, to just after Mao's death when when political opinion started to be voiced um, a little bit more openly than it had been previously. Mm-hmm. But um, in the book, I, I, I take it back to the uh, May 4th protests of 1919. And these happen um, at Tiananmen. Now, Tiananmen is actually the name of the the entrance gate to the Forbidden City. So it's the place where um, Mao uh, announced, declared the establishment of the People's Republic of China in in, in October of 1949. Um, so Tiananmen is is, is uh, the gate of heavenly peace. That's what the name means. And so the square takes its name from that. Mm. Um, and in 1919, upset at the uh, outcome of the of the uh, Versailles Conference after the First World War um, in in Europe, um, students gathered um, to to protest. And ever since then. Uh, that has been um, a site where people gather when they are unhappy um, with with things big and small. So there is a tradition of petitioning the government, and and very often those petitions would be taken uh, to the uh, the areas around Tiananmen. So the just next to the Forbidden City is the kind of equivalent of of of, of the White House for China, mm-hmm. uh, called Zhongnanhai. So. People would tend to congregate on uh, Chang'antier to protest, to petition, um, to express their grievances, um, to express their desire for um, change. Um, And that's something that has happened much, much less um, in the recent past because China has got much, much better at stopping it. The security Mm -hmm. apparatus along Chang'antier is absolutely um, absurd. Uh, You can't really get anywhere near um, Tiananmen Square w- without passing through at least a couple of checkpoints uh, where your bag will be will be uh, scanned and your passport will be scrutinised. Um, so the, they, the, the uh, security apparatus has got much better at stopping things from happening. But even relatively recently, there have been uh, attempted protests in that in that area. So in one in, in one way, this is a site which has over the years um, been one that's attracted people who want to make their 
feelings known about uh, modern China, uh, not just in the communist era, but before that, as I say. It seems also to me to articulate, as I, as I mentioned, a debate about what kind of uh, city Beijing wants to be and by default then what kind of city uh, all Chinese cities wants to want to be because in many ways they look to Beijing as a model. Um, so that, that, that debate happens you know, architecturally, um, but also in terms of uh, kind of the, I, what, is, what is preserved and what is destroyed. Um, so it seemed to me a nice, yeah, a neatly ironic name because uh, it's a place that has seen a huge amount of debate, um, perhaps, you know, in terms of the debate about what about what the city was uh, was was intended to be in the communist era, uh, it's best articulated by a story of just after the communist party had taken over and a, a, a an alternative vision for the city was proposed by China's pr uh, premier architect, uh, a man called Liang Zicheng, who said, "Look, let's preserve the old city." And let's build a new city, a new administration zone out to the west, and we'll do it along a nice north to south axis, and we'll keep the old walls, and we'll turn them into a park, and you can go and have tea up there. And it all sounded wonderfully utopian. And and Mao says, no, 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 we're going to we're going to build this grand avenue, and we're going to get rid of the walls, and we're going to get rid of the gates and the temples, and the hutong. Uh, and um, so. The existence of Long Peace Street is, uh, you know, in itself a reflection of the conflict that that the the arguments that happened in the 1950s about how do we build a capital suitable for for a new for new China as they as they mm -hmm. called it. Yeah, and what struck me too when I was reading it the the Rainbow Bridge that you refer to. Yeah, they're really strange. Um, they're like these neon it's like i mean it's las vegas neon basically they've gone for um and these two they're they're rainbows that arch over the road uh they're broken um i presume because they would need you know you need one of the purposes of this street is to get you know your rocket launchers down there on uh, october 1st but yeah so they're broken in the middle but they kind of reach out to to, to you know from either side of the road um, and they're positioned um, at the point where the old city wall used to run. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I, on either side of the city, there's this sort of mirror of each other. And they were built to commemorate the handing back of uh, Hong Kong from British control to to Chinese. Um, they were really odd. I mean, they're, they're, they're sort of a legacy of the slightly sort of tacky um, 90s in China. And, and they, they don't, they're a bit incongruous. I mean, they're of a piece with the... I gave a talk in Beijing uh, over the summer and somebody asked me a question about um they said have you seen these toadstools these concrete toadstools that uh, are, are are all along Chang'anxie and I said no and it, I, you know, I said what do you mean like and she, she said no, no they're like painted like fairy story kind of toadstools and I, I'd never spotted them which is incredible because then when I went back I was like oh yeah there's there's some of them and I, I think they are um, vents for the subway which runs underneath the street but they're this kind of weirdly whimsical fairy tale touch to a, a part of uh, you know the city that is actually pretty grey and and uh, and determinedly urban um and the and the rainbows kind of have something in common with 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 that uh as well this you know this a slightly odd um dissonant uh architectural facet of the street 
Mm-hmm. But they they speak to the fact that you know that the China China were absolutely delighted that Hong Kong was coming back into Chinese control. Mm-hmm. It speaks to that optimism, right? The peace and the rainbows. Yeah, um, and it struck me, of course, because of what's going on in in, in Hong Kong right now. Uh, but when you mentioned those in the nineties, was that under the the authority of Deng Xiaoping? Um, so he had negotiated the return of Hong Kong, okay. but he, he he died at the beginning of the year, uh, so ninety seven, which is which is when the handover happens in the summer of ninety seven. He dies early; okay. uh, he dies in fe- February of that year. So he never he never got to see the handing back. But it was certainly yeah a, mo- a moment of extreme optimism uh, for China. Um, uh, you know th- things have, things have been, things have have not have obviously been. Uh, difficult in Hong Kong for some time, but yeah, I think those those rainbows do speak to. They had a clock as well in Tiananmen Square, which is counting down the seconds until <laughs> the return of Hong Kong, and it speaks to an optimism that now seems uh, fairly misguided. Certainly, you know, f- f- from the Hong Kong point of view. All right. If you don't mind, if we if we can change gears a little bit and uh, talk about the book's structure, the, I guess the book's narrative structure. The the book is. Uh, in my opinion, it's kind of hard to, to pin down into a, a category because on one hand, it's as the listeners can, can realize, right, this book is one part history, right? Modern history of, of Beijing mm. in particular, but in general, also the modern history of China. But it's uh, one part, maybe travelogue. It's a, kind of a witness to a contemporary moment in the 2010s, right? So how do you see this book in terms of uh, genre? Um, yeah, it's an interesting uh, uncertainty that has has keeps kind of cropping up. Uh, I, I read a review of it recently, and, and the person writing the review seemed uh, very unsure as to, to, to how to classify it. And in a way, having spent much of my um, life writing about and studying. Uh, the work of Bruce Chatwin, um, I found it quite entertaining uh, in some ways because he he his work every time um, he wrote a uh, a new book, people had enormous uh, difficulty classifying mm. it. I'm not in any way trying to draw parallels between my own literary talent and his, but but mainly just that I I I found it amusing that the same questions um, were, were being applied to to, to this book. I suppose that when I was writing it, I was drawing on the traditions of uh, of travel literature that seemed to me fairly well known. Uh, books, for example, like uh, as I mentioned, Sabeld earlier. Um, some listeners will know Ian Sinclair, the British writer who has uh, written books about London. One called London Orbital, where he walks around the mm-hmm. the M twenty five, which is the motorway that that, that uh, encircles London. Um, to, to some extent, I was drawing on those traditions. Uh, you know, other books that that I was um, thinking about when I um, I, I was writing the sort of travelogue sections were were um, the Snow Leopard, Peter Mattison's um, book, which is a very different mm. environment, obviously, in which he's travelling through. Um, but I, yeah, yeah, exactly, and he goes on this quest for uh, the Snow Leopard in the aftermath of the death of his wife. Um, but probably the book that I read. I read it quite a few times whilst I was writing was um, Avias Naipaul's The Enigma of Arrival, which is um, a very strange book in some ways. It's written, it's pitched as a novel, um, but I, I can't remember who said this, but you know, one, one critic writing about it says, I doubt any single word in it is, uh, is anything but, but fact. Um, it's about his experience of, of coming to 
um, England and living in rural England. Um, and he, he walks a lot, especially in the early, early section of the book, um, through the landscape of Wiltshire where he moves to. And it's incredibly unusual book, but incredibly compelling at the same time. And um, so, yeah, I was sort of drawing on or, or certainly trying to trying to channel some of those um, those people. And it, the other book I'll just mention is Rebecca West's um, Black Lamb, Grey Falcon, which is uh, an account of her journey through Yugoslavia, in which she spends a lot of time in that book talking, kind of melding travel with history. So that was a, another touchstone for me. Um, and one of the things that I love about travel literature in general, and I particularly love about the literature, travel literature of, of China, is um, the way in which, when well, we touched on this earlier, the way in which it sort of captures a, a moment in time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I got asked a question at a, at a talk I, I did recently, you know, was I worried about the book feeling out of date very quickly? Um, you know, obviously I did the walk in 2016 and it obviously takes a couple of years to write it and then it's another year to get it published. And, uh, you know, and, and here we are in 2020. And, and actually I was, I felt very comfortable with that idea. I think the, what, what you're doing in a, in a book of travel literature is trying to capture that transient moment that you're mm-hmm. experiencing. And I, I love you know, I, I reread Paul Theroux's um, China travel book recently, and and it's obviously you know the China he he recounts is not is no no longer there, but that's a good thing. You know the the fact that he has he has recorded that, mm-hmm. um, and one of the things that I think you know often gets neglected in um, accounts of. Uh, first-person accounts of all sorts is 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 the minutiae, the the stuff that actually you maybe would never think to write about. It seems small, it seems uh, insignificant, but actually in you know in China's case, in in ten years' time, but certainly in thirty or fifty or a hundred years' time, those things are uh, going to be vanished from mm-hmm. from you know from the present reality. Um, and so I, I read a lot of the. Uh, there's a great tradition of of Beijing travel uh, writing in the, the 1930s, and so I read a lot of that. Um, and uh, yeah, you're taken back to an era that is now long long gone, long of course. Gone, yeah. Um, and that, that's part of the fascination for me. Of course. Uh, interestingly, uh, Baudelaire even talks about this in the, the essay in which he spends probably the most time talking about the flaneurs and that it's a, uh, the painter of modern life. Yeah. Uh, and in part of that uh, essay, he talks about a painter, a guy named, um, gosh, I think Constantine. And he cherishes the work of Constantine uh, Constantine Guy, his name is. He mm. he loves his work. Um, you know, of course, Baudelaire is an art critic, so he knows a lot about art. Uh, but he likes this guy's works of art because, well, first, firstly, they're very sketchy in nature, so they're not kind of academic paintings as you would expect them to be um, in 19th mm. century Paris. But he likes them because they capture that fleeting moment, that kind of fugitive moment that will, well, after it passes, will no longer uh, exist mm-hmm. in anyone's imagination. And so this seems to me like um, kind of the power of travel writing in, in, in some ways is it captures this moment that is soon soon to va- vanish, r- records it. Uh, and well, in, in the case of your book, it also frames a larger discussion of the history of, of, of China. So... It works as, in some ways, a narrative device, yet it's a historical one as well. 
Yeah, and I think to some extent, I'm not sure, however however much I like the sound of my own writerly voice, I'm not sure anyone could put up with 250 pages of me uh, writing about my uh, experience <laughs> walking along this 20 miles. I mean, maybe, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't think uh, I, I'm a skilled enough writer to pull that off. And I certainly don't think that I have enough interesting things to say to pull that off. Uh, but so in some ways, the history is, is, is a way of... Um, exploring a different aspect of the city and, and telling the readers a story that um, I think is is important. You know, the mm-hmm. story of modern China, I think, is something that most people uh, realise is is important um, in contemporary, in the contemporary world, um, in a way that it perhaps hadn't been done before. I think, you know, I, 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 as I say, I read a lot of China books and the expositional sections, which do the history, it's, it's chronological and it, you know, tends to recycle many of the same stories. And so one of the things I wanted to do with the history sections was kind of take a, a, the reader in it through a non-chronological version of the history, but also try and explore some of the perhaps more personal narratives or the narratives that were less well known about the recent past. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it kind of made, uh, yeah, I didn't really think too much about the, um, the, the generic qualities of it when I was writing it. I I sort of wonder now whether, I I think it's it's difficult to pigeonhole it. And I think that in a, in a modern publishing environment makes it a challenge. And, uh, I think most publishers, uh, you know, I was fortunate in the publisher that I had, and I think most publishers would like it to be sort of one thing or the other so that it can be neatly sort of slotted on a shelf and marketed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm pleased with the, with the balance that I ended up with. Um, maybe we and can, I, I like the fact that it's got that, you know, generic uncertainty to it. Yeah. Maybe we can talk about that, right? You, you said that you were drawing on, um, travel liter- literary traditions and, and yet it was published by Manchester university press. Right. And yeah. What, what, what I have in mind when I think of literary presses is, you know, kind of theoretical or, you know, books full of academic jargon, um, not ones with a more kind of general appeal as, as yours have. Um, mm-hmm. yours, yours also have, you know, has that narrative subject, the I, um, which you don't normally see in academic books or books published by academic presses. So can you, uh, I, I guess, talk, uh, talk about this? Like, how did you get linked up with Manchester are, are they doing some new things over there? I think most academic presses uh, are looking to try and sort of diversify their mm. catalogue uh, to a great extent. It's a model that has uh, become not very easy to sustain. I, I mean, academic monographs um, published expensive, by university yeah. presses are very expensive, yeah, and they're bought primarily, if not exclusively, by libraries. Um, and obviously the, the model has shifted uh, in, in terms of, you know, what libraries are and, and, and also what they're willing to, to shell out in, in, on, on new academic monographs. So I think most university presses have sort of realised that there's something needs to, their business model probably does have to shift a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, in Britain, Oxford University Press, who are the, the, the biggest of the academic publishers, they have a, a very uh, very large. Uh, they have a trade a trade section which which publishes a lot of a lot of um, trade books, oh, wow. and they can sort of keep their academic um, press separate to some extent from that. Uh, so it, it it seems to make sense, I think, for some of the academic presses. And I had a connection with Manchester because they'd published my book about Bruce Chatwin mm-hmm. um, and uh, had been uh, very. Uh, very good um, during that process. And so when I was sort of 
writing the proposal for this, I I passed it on to the the editor there who'd 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 worked on on my Bruce Chapman book, and then he passed it on to the sort of relevant commissioning editor, and they were interested in doing it. They wanted to do something trade. Um, uh, so it's published as a trade book. It doesn't cost, uh, you'll be pleased to know, you know, <laughs> 70 or 80 pounds. It's just a normal, normally priced book. And they did a really nice job of, of producing, um, the hardback, which is out at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah. And I think that's probably something that they will continue experimenting with. Um, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, you know, it makes a lot of sense because, you know, so much of the academic, um, uh, publishing market is moving on online um, and more and more people are accessing e- e-copies of, of academic texts because in a way you're not you know whereas with a with a book that you love you probably want a hard copy of it with a book that you're using for you know a paper you're writing or a thesis you're writing does it matter as much and I think that shift is something that, that is going to be an interesting trend to watch in publishing. Mm-hmm. Interesting yeah I'll keep an eye out on that I hadn't known that even Oxford uh, has a trade trade arm, but yeah, they they publish some some uh, you know some very successful. And there's always a sort of slightly you know academic bent to them, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, and mm-hmm. I, I think that was the nice thing about Manchester for for me was that they kind of allowed the book to be what it was, which was as you as you've said, a, a slightly unusual hybrid of of genres. And uh, there you know it has the book has got footnotes, it's got a pretty long bibliography. Mm-hmm. Um, you know it has some of the the qualities you'd expect from an academic book. But as you say, that there are other bits that are more. Uh, first-person travel log. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not. Um, there's no barrier to entry. You don't need to be a specialist in the subject in order to pick it up and 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 follow it along, right? No, and and I I hope that that's the audience I intended the book for. Really, were people who had a had a casual interest in in China and and, and wanted to learn more about it. Mm-hmm. Well, I know we're getting uh, close to time here. Um, I I was poking around in Twitter and I saw that you had mentioned. You are start, starting a podcast that retraces the steps of Deng Xiaoping uh, and one of his, um, I guess, tours throughout China. Can you tell us a little bit more about your podcast and what your plans are and uh, what what this is all about? Uh, sure. So uh, over the course of last summer, um, I spent uh, about four or five weeks retracing this in China, very famous journey that the successor to Mao, Deng Xiaoping, um, took in 1992. Um, it's called the Southern Tour, Deng Xiaoping's Southern Tour, where he goes to these sort of boom towns of the south, most famous of which is, is Shenzhen. I'm sure a lot of mm-hmm. listeners know that city. Um, to kind of, it's it's to reaffirm the idea that China needs to carry on opening it up and reforming its economy and and uh, and make money. Uh, in the aftermath of the Tiananmen protests, things had contracted and people were perhaps saying that China had gone too far too fast. And his southern tour is this um, moment where he, he you nearly know, is 88 when he does this journey and he you know, really wants to solidify his legacy and, and say to the leaders back in Beijing, look, we need to carry on. We need to do more. We need to move faster. And which is what happened. I mean, he was successful. And and, and the 90s, you know, the roaring 90s, as they're known in, in, you know, in China, were this incredible explosion of economic growth. So I retraced the journey. Um, and this year, 
I will be, um, yeah, I'll be doing a podcast where I talk to people who have um, interest in some of the places he went to or some of the um, ideas behind uh, the policies that he pursued and also just his life. Um, and I'm writing a book based on that. It won't be quite the same. It, it's not going to be a sort of first person travel log. It will be a bit, a bit bit more sort of narrative history really mm-hmm. um there's le- less of me in it but um yeah it still has that the, that journey at the center of it so um there's still that link back to back to travel uh so yeah i'm just i'm just working on that as as we speak i'm a, a bit of a glutton for punishment it seems <laughs> and uh but i'm they will be interrupted very shortly because uh i I'm a, my 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 wife is pregnant and i'm about oh, to wow. have a baby so i think that that might put press the pause button on uh, on, on my writing thanks very much yeah on my writing for a little while when do you expect to launch the podcast at least yeah, I'm sort of hoping um, uh, late spring, early summer this year. Uh, I'm doing some of the interviews for it now. Oh, good. Um, and, and and it will and it'll re- it'll retrace the journey. The idea is it's a kind of limited concept in that we'll kind of go to each of the uh, you know the cities intellectually go, not physically go, but to each of the cities uh, that he visited and and sort of talk about the journey he made. And um, I, 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 I I'm kind of envisaging it being a bit of a repository for all the interesting stuff that I can't. I can't shoehorn into the book because uh, I, that's the danger, you know, especially with research right, in China, right. there's so much interesting history and stories and stuff about culture and food and architecture. And I sort of want somewhere that I can, I can record and discuss those. So that's the idea of the podcast. So where can we find you online uh, to stay in touch with you about your podcast and about your upcoming works? Where can we find you? <laughs> So, uh, yeah, Twitter's good. Um, my Twitter is at jmchatwin, uh, and I've got a website as well, which is jonathanchatwin.com. Um, and the book is out in North America and well, all over the world in hardback, and there's a Kindle edition of it, and it'll be out in paperback, I think, uh, some, at some point this year. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly when at the moment. Very good. We'll put links to all those in the show notes. And, uh, well, hey, thanks for coming on to the podcast to talk about your book. Thanks ever so much. I hope you enjoyed the interview. You can find the episode show notes and much more at alloverthepacepodcast.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at patreon.com slash alloverthepace. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash all over the place. Thanks for your support.